it's Lisa, and thank you for tuning in for today's episode of Bird on the Wire. In a little while, I'll be speaking with Kluani Adamek. She's a regional chief for the Assembly of First Nations and someone I have long admired, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. You may have noticed that we didn't put out a new episode last week, and to be honest, I had needed a bit of a break. Business is good and getting busier, so I'm delighted about that, but it also means that I need to prioritize. So we're going to go from a weekly pod to bi-weekly, but hopefully we can fit in a few extra episodes over the summer when typically things are a bit quieter. And to be completely honest, uh, the last couple of weeks have been tough. COVID is heavy. You know, we're entering the second year depending upon where you live in this country, it's goddamn cold outside. And I think all of it just kind of got to me a little bit. So I took a bit of time and we're back and everyone's doing well and I have no complaints. So thank you again for tuning in and understanding. With that, I've been thinking a lot about uh, social media, how it's being used, by who it's being used and the rest of it, how it's being used. And with the liberal government hoping to limit what can be said on social media, including hate speech, there is surprisingly a good level of agreement between the three main political parties on this. Maybe not on the details, but on the general premise that social media giants bear some responsibility for what is said and posted on their platforms. New Democratic MP Charlie Angus sounded the alarm recently when he said that a Canadian politician could end up being harmed or worse if nothing is done to stop the rising tide of hateful comments on social media. He specifically referred to the time last summer when a man tried to arrest NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on the streets of Ottawa, and he also mentioned the murder of British MP Joe Cox in 2016. There's more examples to be sure, but it raises an important point. How far are we going to let things go? Are we going to allow things to go as far as they did on January 6th in the United States? We're all now aware that social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Parler before its demise have been used to not only spread hate and disinformation, but they've been used as a place where people can go to organize like the insurrectionists in the U.S. when they breached the Capitol last month, or the politicians who use these platforms to incite and encourage this behavior. Canada's heritage minister said recently at committee that Canada is not exempt from what happened in the U.S. and explained that he is planning to set up a new regulator that would have power to monitor and penalize social media companies that are being irresponsible. In Canada, social media platforms have also been used to organize, and I don't think that it's any coincidence that the weekend the Canadian Forces Reservists stormed the gates of Rideau Hall, there was an anti-mask rally on Parliament Hill. Some of those signs seen at the protest, I don't know how you protest health measures, but they did. So some of the signs you saw there were, and I'm quoting, these are real, enough tyranny, QAnon, 5G kills, 
Make Canada Religious and Godly Again, Unmask Female Pedophiles in Government, and lastly, Wanted, a Canadian Trump. I won't name the group that organized this event, but they have a website that lists apparently a few dozen examples of so-called treason committed by the federal government. Seriously. And not far from where this event was taking place, a man had driven onto the grounds of Rideau Hall and crashed his truck into the gates. He then got out of the truck with loaded firearms and attempted to go find the prime minister so he could, according to this man, arrest him. When officers asked him to put the weapons down, he repeatedly refused. It should be noted that this man drove all the way from Manitoba to Ottawa, believing that Canada is now under a communist dictatorship. Later, during an interview following his arrest, the man was asked by an officer if he had any regrets. This man responded that he regretted not stopping to look at the Terry Fox statue. That was his regret. Data from his cell phone and social media accounts included exchanges about Canadian government conspiracy theories and COVID-19. Most haunting, he and a friend exchanged messages about last April's mass shooting in Nova Scotia, speculating on a, quote, sacrifice theory. So yes, Charlie Angus is right when he says that a Canadian politician could be hurt or killed by what is said and spread on social media. What happened on the grounds of Rideau Hall could have been much more tragic. Between the recent incidents in Canada and what happened in the U.S., we now know what a toxic and dangerous place social media can be. And in the U.S., people did die. I don't know what the answer is here. I don't know if it's a new regulator, but I do know we must do something to stop the continuing spread of disinformation, conspiracy theories, and hate before someone here at home is injured or worse. Thank you for listening, and I hope you stick around for my conversation with AFN Regional Chief Kluani Adamic. She is definitely one to watch. Hey, it's Lisa, and I'm here today with Kluani Adamic, a member of the Kluani First Nation, which is a nation that my firm is fortunate to represent. She's also the regional chief of the Assembly First Nations, and her resume is impressive. And I think we're going to hear a lot more from regional chief Adamic in coming years. Kluani, thank you so much for coming on Bird on the Wire. It's truly my pleasure to have you and that this is your first podcast. So that makes it even, even better. Chief, thank you so much, Lisa, and really excited to uh, spend time with you and to talk about really, really important things happening right now. Awesome. So why don't we why don't we dive right into it? Because the first story I want to talk about is something that's been in the news now for probably about two weeks, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon because it's about a couple of entitled rich idiots. So there's this couple, this this man who used to head one of the largest uh, casino companies in the country, a multimillionaire to be sure. So he and his very young wife, they flew on a chartered flight. They came into the Yukon, 
they went up into a northern remote community, I think within the White River First Nation, adjacent to Kelowna First Nation, and they lied about who they were. They said they worked at the local motel, and I spent a lot of time in the Yukon, and basically the minute you land anywhere in Yukon, they know, they know that someone who's not from here has arrived but they were able to get themselves vaccines by saying that they were motel workers. And these vaccines, to be clear, were for people in indigenous communities, for elders, for people who needed these vaccines, because as we all know, uh, if COVID-19 runs, runs rampant through traditional territories or reservations, it's bad news. So they got their vaccines, they went home, and you had called this a blatant display of disrespect and an exemplification of true privilege and entitlement. What was your reaction initially and to this ongoing saga now too? You know, certainly like, you know, and, I, and I'm seeing this across the country, especially for, you know, Yukon, Yukoners, but really importantly here, the White River First Nation and the people there you know, anger, feeling furious, this violation of safety and health of people. And really importantly, and, and you mentioned this, like our elders, it is still something that just is so, you know, when I, when I think about it, when I talk about it, I get angry. And I had a conversation, uh, you mentioned my community is pretty close, um, mm -hmm. you know, just down the highway. And I had a conversation with my dad who sometimes will go and do the water delivery there. And so he was there for essential service purposes the same day that oh, this wow. happened. And I didn't realize that. And he, you know, we were like texting, which is so cool because my dad didn't text before. Now he does. And he, my dad's a really like strong, very humble, spends a lot of time on the land. And there's not a lot that kind of really like shakes him. And so he was really shaken by the fact that it could have what could have been mm. right and so these this these actions that were so again blatantly disrespectful coming from a place of privilege and entitlement that they just showed up but like the the fear and the uncertainty and like people are already dealing with enough uh with respect to like mental health and and feeling really scared um of of covid that for the citizens of White River First Nation, most importantly in this case, um, but certainly being mindful of like the fact that people in these small communities are having to still make connection through, you know, essential services and supports or bringing elders to town for appointments, stuff like that. Right. That this could have been, like this could have decimated communities. And it's, you know, I think the media has really picked up on, of course, you know, the, the irony, uh, and maybe it's not so ironic that it was millionaires, so to speak, that did mm -hmm. this, but like for people not really to understand that these small communities, we're talking like less than a hundred people. Yeah. I don't, there. I don't think people <laughs> really understand the true remoteness of these Northern communities in Yukon. I think in Beaver Creek, the closest hospital is something like five hours away. So if, absolutely. Right. So if there had been people who had gotten sick because of these ignorant jerks, like getting healthcare would have been a problem, you know, get keeping people safe would have been a problem. And it's just, 
it it was just shocking to me that people even thought that this was some somehow acceptable that their privilege that their status that their their means meant that they can go and pretend to be motel workers and again i've stayed in very small motels in yukon i think the last one i was at was the one in destruction bay and okay. right so people people know when when you're in town and i just i the audacity of it like just the audacity well and i you know you make a really good point about people knowing like in these small communities yeah like everyone knows who you are and everyone knows if you're not from there but you totally. know it's interesting because you look at this couple and yeah we look at you know the fact again we go to um you know the the privilege in terms of being you know quite wealthy as a as a couple I then looked to earlier this year, and it made it all the way to Vice, right? The the two people that came from Quebec all the way to Vantuckwichin, Old Crow, our only fly-in remote community, and just showed up. They just, you know, had a vision and showed up, flew into Whitehorse, made it to Old Crow, oh, and right. were like looking for work. And it was all over the news. So I'm kind of like, First of all, everyone saw that, right? Everyone yeah. knew. And that community, again, was shaken. So what is it that, that people don't understand? Or what is it that compels people to think that they're so either untouchable or maybe, you know, this is the conversation about pure ignorance. And, well, and, like, and, and racism too. Yeah, the, yeah. the idea that they're more entitled to vaccines than the indigenous peoples who those vaccines were meant for, given our historical practices of poor health outcomes for indigenous communities, because we're just, we're shitty at it. You know, Canada has for a long time, not always done the right thing. And finally, you know, I was so pleased to see that the government had decided to make an allocation for indigenous communities. Do you remember when Brian Pallister before Christmas had talked about it being unfair that there was an allotment that was to be only for indigenous peoples and then the rest could go for the remainder of his of his citizens and it was like hey Brian that's what equity is that's equity that's the government doing the right thing to make sure that they don't all go to non-indigenous people and that we don't continue perpetuating the lack of healthcare resources for indigenous communities and, and then you go back to originally this couple, I think they were going to be fined what, like 500 bucks. And when you're making 5 million a year, I mean, that's, it's, it's nothing. And now I think they have a court date coming up in a couple of months. So what, what do you think is just in this situation? What would, what would justice be? Cause it has to be also a deterrent because this is now the second couple who's tried to do this. You know, like ultimately here, I, I do think there needs to be the, these conversations with White River First Nation. I've seen a lot of people talking about, you know, length of lead jail time, totally agree the fines. And I think at the end of the day, it ended up being like 1150, yeah. um, sorry, $1,150 each. But yeah, if you're, if you're bringing in in the millions, like, you know, that's like putting 25 cents in a parking meter for, for others, if you were to do a comparison. And, and even that isn't a great example, right? It's just, it's, it does not, as you mentioned, like have the impact that really needs to be had. You know, the broader conversation that I, I also would love to see is like, for these people to really understand what they did, 
And mm -hmm. there are some really, you know, um, I think about in communities, there's talking circles, there's restorative justice, there's, you know, different ways of having the conversation. And a long time ago, like there, there were practices of when somebody did wrong, right? There was a process that happened. And, you, uh, you know, you're really familiar with the clan system, right? If you do something and you do a wrongdoing, you're not just responsible for you, you're actually representing your entire clan or, you know, to some degree, um, your nation as well. So there's a lot exactly. that needs to, I think, happen. And I would, you know, at the end of the day, I think for, for this to really be something that is not only the, you know, quote unquote, learning moment, but how do we make this real change so that people who think that either taking advantage of, or I'm just going to do what I want to do because I have the means to do it. I think people really need to understand what the reality is for First Nation communities and how very, very scary that that whole experience was and what it could have been. And I don't know if there's a willingness by these two individuals or other Canadians who may have been thinking about doing somewhat of the same thing, right? Just showing up. But I really would love to see a shift. And, and I don't know how exactly we measure that, Lisa. I, I really want to hear from White River, but I do want to just share one reflection. I had a young person reach out to me from White River and he said, thanks, Kalani, for putting out a statement. I said, well, I mean, the very least I could do, right, is to, is to stand with you publicly in this way. But he said, you know, it really, it scared me. And for a young person, right, alongside thinking about his grandma and his aunties to reach out and be like, this is not okay. These individuals need to hear from the community. They need to understand what they've done and how horrific the experience has been for Beaver Creek. But, but there's got to be some humility here. And I do think it needs to go beyond that. It needs to go, we need to look at sanctions and, and the justice to be served is, is, is important. But I, I really think, Lisa, that there's a lot of Canadians that just that, that may not really understand what the impact could be. Because I see the media making this about these millionaires doing this thing. And I'm like, right. let's make it about the community, though. Like, this is really scary. And the two vaccines that they took, right, as you mentioned, were for Indigenous peoples and or Northerners. Yeah. And so and so where does that leave that discussion of justice? Well, and, and you raise an important point because the media is focused on the kind of the celebrity piece of this, right? Where you have millionaires who are chartering planes, you know, an older man with quite a young woman who apparently is a, a quote, actor. Um, and you have all those elements to the story, which makes it interesting for people to read. But the part that's missing is that piece that you were talking about what this would have done to the community, what remote Northern communities look like, how justice would look differently if White River were allowed to be part of the conversation. And that young person who reached out to you to talk to you like that, like, I don't think that non-Indigenous people fully understand the ramifications of what could have gone wrong here, of how bad this could have been to that community. Because it's not just about queue jumping. It, it is about, you know, and I, um, I had shared this with you, you know, I've shared this publicly, like, um, you know, how after, you know, losing an elder, two really important elders in our community, my great aunt and my grandmother in the span of like two weeks. I'm so sorry. Um, and, 
Thank you. Um, and, and not not due to COVID, um, to be clear. We've actually had a really, we've gone up and down a little bit with cases, but in comparison right now we're at zero. And so people are, you know, let, let's, let's keep it there. But this is like an, these are like encyclopedias of knowledge of, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of the ways of knowing, the ways of being. And this is like thousands of years of stories, like shared and knowledge and practice, protocol, ceremony. I have so many questions, like unanswered. And, you know, I, you know, plan to see my grandma in January, I had a gift for her and I, and I won't get to give it to her, but I'm going to be mindful of what I'm going to do. That's going to be special for that gift. But the point is I was so looking forward to meeting with her and asking her a whole bunch of things, right. As I prepare to, you know, think about starting my own family, what are the things I need to know about pregnancy as a Southern Toshone woman? There's all these questions that I have. Um, what about how does that relate to funerals? What about these songs? How do I say this properly? What if I'm doing this with my moose hide? The list goes on. It's just gone. We don't, we're not writing, you know, in, in the same way that, um, you know, we look at history in terms of it being written, like it's so oral for us that, exactly. that this is where people don't understand that lot, like potential of taking away and ripping apart a community by exposing vulnerable people like our elders, our knowledge keepers is so, so scary. And I don't think people understand that. They absolutely don't. I was talking to a chief recently of a a small nation, I think about 325 people or so. And she had mentioned to me that they only had one language speaker left. And to your point, you know, this is passed down. These oral traditions are passed down. So what happens when your last traditional language speaker is gone and, you know, losing, losing elders, it is, it's, it's different for indigenous communities because it is so much part of your history and your ways of knowing and your ways of being and all those traditions. And then you wrap that all up with the fact that this was your grandma and it's hard. And it's, it's something that non-Indigenous people typically don't understand because we don't, first of all, we don't teach it in school. That's a problem. Yeah. And we, we don't talk about it otherwise. And then when we have an opportunity to talk about it, we instead talk about, you know, how they were so rich, they were able to charter a plane and come into the community, but we're not talking about the elements behind all of that of the catastrophic effects that that could have had and the devastation to that community and the anger of the citizens within that community as well. Those are all, and and thank you for, um, you know, I think sometimes it's really hard to, um, when when you're, and and I want to be clear, like I live in Whitehorse, right? Like I'm not one of those people who may have felt the way that like my dad feels but it's a lot to carry. And so for people like you to be able to help others and help me and all of us here in the region explain what that means, like it is those connectors. And my grandma would often say that, like, because I'm Indigenous and non-Indigenous, she'd remind me like, Kluani, like, we need you, I need you to walk in both worlds and be able to help, help us through helping non-Indigenous people understand. Right. So this is this exact conversation. And this is, I think, what reconciliation means. It shouldn't just be also on Indigenous peoples to have to carry that. 
to have to explain all the time, right? Like it's, what do they call that? Like psychological safety, right? To always Mm -hmm. be like ready to answer the questions or to be asked, um, you know, pretty triggering um, about pretty triggering experiences that they may never know you've had. So I think it's the time for Canada to start to say, and I appreciate, um, appreciate you, Lisa. I really, really do for, for showing up and saying, yeah, it's not, this isn't just about indigenous peoples to tell us what to do, right? Like that's not what reconciliation is and it's not just up to us. It can't be. Well, you guys have already done so much of the heavy lifting, right? Like it reminds me of when we started having conversations over the summertime when there were protests about Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Lives Matter. And it shouldn't be incumbent upon you know, a non-Indigenous person to say, okay, teach me whatever I need to know. Like it, it's it's not your job, right? Like we we have an obligation to learn. And one of the things I love about doing Indigenous work, as you know, my practice is, is mainly with Indigenous communities, is that it presents itself an opportunity to me to keep learning, to be able to keep understanding. Because to be to be fair, I never learned in history classes in high school or in elementary school. I never learned an accurate history of Indigenous peoples in, in Canada. That was never taught. And I actually didn't learn about residential school systems until I was in university. And that's a big part of where this change needs to happen. Kids need to grow up knowing what we have done to indigenous peoples in this country. You've brought up, I think, what is what is so important. And I too, right? Like in high school, we talked a bit about it. In elementary school, it was like far worse. It was like, and, and, and I, I spent elementary school in Ontario. So I had a chance to like kind of live that, live through, you know, very urban, very different environment that, you know, we were learning about like the spice trade. And I remember going home and my mom was like, oh God, <laughs> like this, okay, this is not like Jacques Cartier came over and then there's <laughs> indigenous peoples and they traded like corn and rice, you know, like this is like really weird. So yeah, the the knowledge, I think, and even in university, like having to constantly, and I, I had a friend who recently is, she's doing her, um, she's becoming a psychiatrist. So she's doing that. I think it's like a doctorate, right? At that, at that point, anyway, right. she's doing her and she's doing research and she's taking this indigenous studies. And she's like, I, Kwani, I am like, so sorry that like, I didn't understand. And there were things I tried to do in university to like, you know, when we were together trying to do problem solving, like, let's like, maybe we just need to get together in a circle and just like talk about the issues and some of these student clubs I was a part of. And she's like, I didn't get what you were trying to do. I'm like, yeah, I was trying to help you understand that there's like different ways. And like, I see things differently here from having that experience being a younger student in Ontario to like finishing high school in the Yukon and still not feeling like we had enough learning about who we are to going to university and having those same experiences that you did being like seriously or Canadian studies course we're talking about residential school and people just didn't even know and I was the only person who could actually explain from a, you know, very lived experience of what my grandmother went through and telling her story to a class. And they were like shocked that someone was in their class that had someone in their family went to residential school. Like that, that's how real it is. They think that this was all done a hundred, 150 years ago. And therefore we're not responsible. And, you know, I often tell people, cause it, 
I think it brings it home how recent in history this is, you know, that the last residential school shut down in Canada the year my youngest child was born. You know, we're, we're not talking about something that happened before we were born. We're talking about something that happened in recent history. And I'll never forget when I went back to school in university, it was a first year university writing class. And the professor wanted to get a sense of where our skill levels were at. I went to a really small university and he picked a few people to read their stories. And in this class, there was maybe 20 of us. And there was always in this class, this young man, he was older than us, but younger than I am now. And he always sat in the back, kept to himself. And he'd been asked to read his story. And his story was about his experience in, in a residential school. And it was the first time I had ever heard a first person account of what happened to him. And of course, many of us were openly weeping by the time he, he finished reading his essay. And it just comes back to, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, right before, I think it was in December, I can't remember anymore, COVID does weird things with time and space. Aaron O'Toole had been caught on audio tape, you know, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the official opposition, the guy who wants to be prime minister, said to a group of university students that residential schools, the intent was to educate Indigenous peoples. And we all know that that's total bullshit. But he still said it. So what's your takeaway from that when you have when you're hearing leaders in this country, who were still trying to minimize the effects of what happened. It's it's heavy, you know, and I think about the Senator Bayak who just, you know, resigned and gets to essentially walk away. Um, With her pension. Instead of, yeah. It feels like, first of all, it feels like somebody has just, you know, kind of that hit you when you're already down feeling when those kind of comments are said. And you know, I, I haven't had the opportunity to speak ever um, with with Aaron O'Toole. And, you know, I, I hope that not necessarily that we do have a chance to speak. I mean, you never know. Things are changing all the time. We could be looking at a federal election. And you're right. This could be our next prime minister. We really don't know. Point is, the conversation that I would have with him would be to remind him like that the impacts of residential school in my family have been incredible incredibly grave, incredibly deep. And to ever say that that was a, an educational experience or to kind of sideswipe it as a non-issue is so disrespectful. And residential school is also often described as a cultural genocide. Mm, and so I know, and I, and this is not to compare or contrast trauma because I feel like that can be an incredibly unhealthy path to walk down but we need to look at what's real here about what was taken from um, you know in Europe through through the holocaust um, and the continued discrimination that people who identify um, as Jewish experience we need to look at that and we need to look at also here in Canada like we have this cultural genocide that was residential schools and it's real and it's so uncomfortable. And I get that. Right. And it, it yeah. doesn't mean that every non-Indigenous person in Canada has to wear it. 
but every non-Indigenous person in Canada needs to be aware of it and be mindful about how they talk about it and how they share about it because we cannot allow for another generation to grow up in this country not knowing but also saying comments like the comments we've heard from and not just those two right elected leaders but many others um you mentioned exactly. the recent premier of, of manitoba and kind of that vein that view of of not recognizing how important it is for first nations people to be obviously because they are identified as a vulnerable population and we can go you know there's tons of information and research about where that has come from and why the reality is we've really got to change what Canadians are learning about the true history you know the hidden truth so to speak yeah. and just getting uncomfortable with it because it's hard and it's not nice and it's not pretty it's a dark dark chapter but if we don't we really risk growing into what we could be and what our kids really deserve in Canada, I, all kids. I like what you said about that we have to get uncomfortable. You know, that people who are non-Indigenous, we need to get uncomfortable with what happened in our history. And we need to be able to gain a level of knowledge that changes viewpoints and perspectives because we do need to dismantle systems. We do need to address systemic racism. And if we ever want to get to a point of real reconciliation, we can't do that without being uncomfortable. Absolutely. And part of that discomfort is, I think, acknowledging privilege. And that, to me, is a conversation that I'm, I've kind of been reminded of lately. And so I don't know if that means that, like, the universe is telling me to, like, dive deeper or to, like, get you know, ready, so to speak, to have to really address this issue. But I feel like this whole concept of privilege, specifically white privilege, mm -hmm. um, but even privilege, like, I mean, for me, and you're not like seeing me right now necessarily on screen, but I'm, I am a, a, a First Nations proud woman. Um, and, and most people will say, oh, you look something, but they don't really know. Right. And so like, I'm not, and, and with my cousins, when I was younger, like, I'm not the one getting followed around in a store. I wasn't then and I'm not now. And so I know that just because of what I look like, right, there's a privilege that I have that is very different right. than some of my cousins or people in my community and my family. In fact, like that is something I think that we really need to start acknowledging. And for, you know, having conversations recently with some, some business leaders and some business leaders being so uncomfortable with having to sit with the fact that maybe they're not making it on boards because they're not you know, women or indigenous or diverse. And I'm like, okay, but like how many opportunities have you had? Yeah. It's right? like, it's like, get up and give us your goddamn seat. Right. Like, I don't think people have any more tolerance for that, but you know, what we know through history is, you know, it's like with the Indian act, you, you've talked before about the matrilineal uh, ways of, um, nations governing them themselves and we had the indian act and bad things continue to happen under it you know colonialism is alive and and well in this country and to have those really really uncomfortable conversations does mean that non-indigenous people men have to be honest with themselves in the fact that power protects power and until someone at the top of the chain says you know this is wrong there's 10 seats around this board table, as an example, and we're all a bunch of, of white guys. So 
we need four of you to volunteer to get up and go so we can put people who are just as qualified but maybe didn't make it to the top of the stack of applications. You know, we need to start seeing this. And we saw this with Kamala Harris becoming the first female South Asian black woman vice president ever of the United States. And I loved all the images of young girls of color watching her being sworn in. And it was just like the looks on their faces was like, maybe I can do that too. So until we start demonstrating that women, people of color, non-traditional people who hold power can effectively do these jobs, like we have to force the change sometimes. You're totally on, I think, Lisa. It's, it is like, like move over, get out of that chair. It's time, right? And it, it, it's an incredibly uncomfortable space to be in as um, women. And I think, you know, apart and aside from being, you know, indigenous or um, South Asian or black, that in and of itself. And I think about Kamala and I'm like, oh yeah, you did. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, you did. Um, and I, and I hear, and, and my point is also about women like in roles, you know, in, in leadership and, there's still like, we still have these conversations about underrepresentation. We still have these conversations about pay equity. And as the, the youngest, um, it's not always about age, but clearly um, I'm younger than a lot of my colleagues at the national executive. There's gotta be more space. It can't just be about like, let's elect people and then expect them to just like have to swim, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why aren't we actually changing to create a safer more comfortable, more respectful place for when people are in these positions and these roles, right? Like, I think that that is a big part of this too. And for people to start being called out essentially on when they don't, right? Like we create all this space to create, you know, let's have more diversity and let's like be more inclusive. But what if people aren't? What if people aren't doing that? What do we Mm -hmm. do about that? And it's like, oh, well, we're going to have a conversation. I'm like, no. Like, it's not okay. It's not right. It's not the right thing to do. So I feel like we need to be, again, it's not about any, it's not about the people. It's like being hard on the issues and soft on people. But these are so, the the space we're in is it's critical that women of all places and spaces are included, but especially women who are indigenous, um, who are from marginalized communities. I also very much feel, you know, I grew up with a single mom. Um, and, and my mom is non-Indigenous, but the experience that she's had, why is that, why would that not be included in some type of like board metrics, for example, if that should be a path she's choosing to Mm -hmm. be like, no, like she made it happen and made ends meet and raised three kids by herself. Wow. Like (laughs) check this amazing box on the skills and metrics, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but we don't do that. We, We don't do that. No, and I, th- I think, you know, to your point, sometimes we just, I know people are very critical about affirmative action because, well, white guys mostly are critical of affirmative action because they believe, one, that people who are unqualified are going to get positions that they don't deserve, and two, that they are somehow going to be relieved of their status and privilege to make room for somebody else. And so when we talk about reconciliation in that context, 
how do we do that? How do we do that in a real substantive way that actually has some effect? Mm. Sorry. I know, I know it's, <laughs> a hard, it's a hard question, right? Thought. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, like the first part of it is, is to kind of, and, and I think about like what my grandma would say, right? Like she would often say to me, Kruani, like, don't, don't think so much about it. Like, just do it. So I think it is like the challenge to all of us. Like sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in the like, eh, well, um, and, you know, but if you know that something is like the right thing to do, then you should just do that. So if it's about like challenging yourself to like read more, um, educate yourself, figure a place or space for you to be able to work through some of that for yourself, whether it's that discomfort mm-hmm. or like having to acknowledge the the privileges that a lot of us have, like having a degree, like, you know, those like things, it's like, am I privileged? And you go through all the questions or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, even having a degree puts you in a totally different space and place than somebody who doesn't in this country. Exactly. To be, you know, employable, for example. So like, I think it is about everybody kind of, and I think about Brene Brown, love her, you know, like taking off the armor for a minute. So it's like taking off all the things that we try to just like protect ourselves with, or like make sure that we're able to like defend the way that we think or feel because we've got this armor on that allows us to do it. But to just like give yourself the permission to say, you know what, maybe I really just don't know. Or you know what, I'm going to learn and I don't care if my you know, I don't know, family, spouse, whatever, they think it's ridiculous. I'm going to learn and I'm going to do the right thing because I think that that's really important. And I think that we don't allow ourselves enough of that space to like really challenge. And and I see this in a lot of my non-Indigenous friend circles where, you know, so-and-so grew up this way, their partner's this way. So they just kind of are like, well, we're, this is kind of just how we think about it. And I'm like, yeah, but is it really how you think about it? You know, Mm -hmm. is it really what you know about it? Or are we just kind of like playing this game of, well, we're just going to leave it be because it's more comfortable to not. I think we really do back to your earlier point, like take off the armor a bit and like acknowledge maybe you just, you don't know what you don't know and that's Mm -hmm. okay. But then you have a responsibility, right? To seek the knowledge that you may not have. And I think if we can do more of that, and that's for all of us. If we can do more of that, right? I feel like we'll be able to be better positioned to start doing some of the hard work that, that we really need to be doing um, instead of having these you know, ongoing debates about affirmative action or whether women should have a seat at the table or not. Like really, like we're past it. So let's just figure mm-hmm. out how to do that. No, you're exactly right. And I, and I think you and I could probably talk about this for hours. And I just wanted to ask you one more question before I let you go back to your day. So we all heard about the Governor General, Julie Payette. There'd been stories and rumors for many, many, many months about mistreatment of staff. We read about a cat door that she wanted installed that cost about 150000 bucks. She didn't even seem to want the job. She clearly wasn't cut out for it. So now we have an opening in the GG's office. We need a new governor general. So there's, I've been reading several articles on both sides in terms of, should we have an indigenous governor general? And I've read, I've read indigenous journalists who are on the 
the pro side of it. And I've read indigenous journalists who are on the negative side of it. What's your view on that? Like, given that she's the queen's representative who has basically presided over colonialism for 150 years, like would having a, a, an indigenous governor general be, be helpful at this point? You know, and I, I too have had a look, right. Of course, at like the, the various opinions, the differing opinions. What I find really interesting is that, you know, we've had in the past in Canada, in multiple different regions, we've had lieutenant governors, we've had in the Yukon commissioners, our, our current deputy commissioner is an Indigenous woman, right? So we've had in the Yukon two Indigenous women who have been our commissioner. And I really, really feel that, and, and I talked about this earlier, not only do I feel, but will I, I, I'm going to continue to push and press for more women's voices in every place in space where any decisions are being made and where there's an opportunity to create change. And so one thing that really stuck out to me um, in one of the recent articles I was looking at was Michelle Odette. She said, you know, we have something to do now and for tomorrow. That's better than what happened to our people a long time ago. And that is still happening. And will having an Indigenous governor general like change reconciliation? Will it just change our country? Well, no. I mean, it's going to take a lot of work. But here's what mm -hmm. I will say. And yeah, there's a lot, a lot of, of deep, deep relationship like I think about the nations who forged treaty you know before Canada even became a country right was forged right. with the crown and I hear people from those treaty nations talking about that and there's a lot of conversations and so you know those conversations for, for those people that are part of those treaty nations certainly to be having but I, I will say this when I looked at the the list of the former GGs, right? And I was like checking it out and we have, you know, Adrian Clarkson and Mikhail Jean, and then we've had former uh, GG Payette. I don't, I don't see a face that like my cousins can necessarily connect with. And I'd really like to. I really think mm -hmm. it is important that the next governor general be an Indigenous woman. And I say that because of the role that Indigenous women have in community. And it is going to require, from my perspective, us to, to have someone who's not going to be a symbol to make the change, but who's going to do it. And so it can't be someone who's going to be kind of a, some would say like a lackey to government, right? Like right. the GG role in and of itself needs to start to think about how it is a key player in this commitment to reconciliation. So more of in, an activist role. I think it's a, about a showing up role, mm. right? I think it's a role about, okay, so you get to go and you do these things and like you probe parliament and whatever, but how are you also showing up to show Canadians? Because part of it's also to inspire the nation, right? Yep. How are you showing up to show all Canadians what it actually means to change the relationship? And we need to have more of these conversations. And so this is where, it's got to be doing the work to repair an extremely damaged, an extremely one-sided relationship um, that many First Nations people, and that's been very clear in, in what people have expressed, right? A one-sided relationship with the crown. And in this case, we're talking about the, the queen directly, that we need to think about how this could be a sign of hope, how this could be recognizing that, yes, there's anger. And yes, we need to acknowledge the transgressions of the past, 
but could this also not be a way to really press for what we need to have? Like I, I see like moose hide tanning like happening on the ground of the GG. I see it being beyond having Stu and Bannock at a couple of events, right? Like right. I see it being about reclamation and revitalization of what A, what is that role? Cause that's, I think a lot of questions that Canadians have, right? They're like, okay, so like, what is this now? Well, let's make it to what we, we want it to be. And let's start to have a different relationship then. And if it comes out that maybe we don't need that role anymore, well, that could be interesting too. I mean, I'm just, I'm being bold because I think that this is what we, we require. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there, there has been a longstanding role that has existed in this country and that has never been held by an Indigenous person. And we look to our past and the Royal Proclamation and I wonder why. I wonder why we haven't got there yet. And I feel so strongly that the more Indigenous women that we have in places and spaces will completely change the conversation and the dynamic and the path forward. So that's what I would love to see. And I'd love to see us really look at pressing the the bounds, if you will, of, of what that role can be and should be um, as a leader of reconciliation in this country. Well, I think you're going to be one of those uh, Indigenous women leaders that we're going to hear a lot about from over the next uh, several decades. Uh, And I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you what your political future holds, but I I think it's uh, very bright. And if you ever run for office, I would love to come help you knock doors. And I've been so grateful to have your time today. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. And, um, you know, it's such an honor. This is my first podcast. I'm so excited to be joining you and I look forward to more conversations. And I, I really hope, I hope together that we can all have hope. I hope we can acknowledge what's really hard right now because it is right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it is these moments that bring joy and like, whenever you have those moments, it's like celebrate that. So the fact that we can have this conversation, Lisa, and like, I'm feeling the joy, I'm feeling the laughter, I'm feeling the good, but hard conversations. I'm going to sit with that. And thank you. And I look forward to all of the other incredible people that uh, will be joining you for Bird on the Wire. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm going to have you back. Maybe we should do a panel and we can start talking about how uh, we make people uncomfortable. We'll bring in some, right? We'll bring, right? We'll bring in some other voices too. So thank you again. Uh, thank you. Bird on the Wire is hosted and executive produced by Lisa Kirby, CEO of Blackbird Strategies. Zach Babbins and Hartley Witten are associate producers. Artwork and music by Zach Babbins and engineered and edited by Hartley Witten. From government relations to public relations and everything in between, Blackbird Strategies is here to help your business, association, or First Nation advocate for change. Contact Blackbird Strategies today to learn how we can help you get the job done. Thanks for listening.